Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretto. Supporting companies is a key role for EIS and VCT investors, but how does it work in practice? In this episode, Ben Leslie of Puma talks about his experiences. We discuss what are the key areas that venture capitalists can help with, how they can go about supporting companies, and what to do when the going gets tough. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or follow the link in the show notes. If you have suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Ben Leslie, who is an investment director at Puma Investments. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Hi, Brian. Thanks very much for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. As usual, we want to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. Can you tell us how you became involved in EIS and VCT fund management? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I actually I started my career at Deloitte in their transaction services team, and I initially was up in Scotland, and you know, was very fortunate given the, the dynamics of the Scottish market that I was working. I was working quite closely with sort of owner managed businesses, founders, you know, really at that sort of scale up stage. And then for a variety of reasons, personal and professional moved down to London. And while it was, you know, an absolutely fantastic experience working with the Deloitte team in London, I found myself working on, you know, bigger and bigger investments, bigger and bigger, you know, opportunities and, and deals. I was finding myself a little bit frustrated with my role and then was was very, very fortunate. There was a partner there, um, a guy called, called Chris Woolley, who actually let me lead on a number of kind of smaller opportunities. Um, again, moving into that owner-managed space, which we didn't do a huge amount of in the team down in London. And that just rekindled my love straight away. And roughly about the same time I met, I, I met Rupert, who's the, the MD here at Puma, who was who was kind of spinning up this team that I that I kind of sit in, and it just was it was the right time and the right fit. And I've been here sort of four four and a half years, and and really for me it was it was that draw of working closely with with the management teams that kind of brought me into this stage of the market. Um, and you know haven't haven't looked back since. Excellent. So glad to hear someone's enjoying their job. Which is, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's there are challenges. Don't get me wrong, but um, <laughs> it's broadly good fun. Yes, yes. So you mentioned you're now with Puma. Do you want to tell us a little bit about who Puma are and what they do? Yeah. So we're a we're a growth capital investor. So we invest in in scale up companies. So so post commercialization and maybe what people would typically term as sort of series A stage. Um, and in terms of what our funds, so we run a, we run a discretionary sort of EIS service and and two VCTs as well. Broadly we deploy them under under the same the same mandate. And what we're looking for in the in the companies that we back is really we're looking to we talk about backing companies, but really we're backing management teams. So we want to find management teams who have that deep domain expertise, who have a you know a disruptive or differentiated product within their industry, who really understand their customers, their customers' kind of challenges or problems, and have built a solution to kind of serve that. And you know, we're a generalist investor, so we we invest across a range of different industries. We also mm-hmm. kind of invest across slightly different stages as well because we do believe in the value of having that diversified portfolio and um, but also because 
we see so much read across in the way that founders and management teams in different sectors ultimately tackle very, very similar challenges. And it's the challenges that everyone's going to face as they scale up their business. And that's where, you know, that's really where we come in and we we talk to our teams, our management teams about, you know, we're here to help you build your business, but ultimately you're the person who's going to be out there running it. Okay. And that kind of segues nicely into what we're going to talk about today, because you talk about speaking with management. And I think for a lot of people who put them from quota to investing in quota companies, they're they're kind of used to these fully formed companies that sort of have all this expertise in-house and self-continue. Whereas when we're doing sort of venture capital investments, that's not very true in a lot of cases. Do you want to maybe talk about why companies need support? Yeah, so it, I think it's it's kind of driven by the the UK ecosystem, some of the dynamics of the UK ecosystem, actually. Mm-hmm. So we're, I think in the UK, we're very, very fortunate that there's an investment landscape driven largely by SEIS, EIS and VCT that creates a, creates a kind of platform for anyone to go out there and start their own business and get funding and, and, and start to start to build something quite special. So we have in the UK, a number of, of first-time founders. Um, you don't see that to the same extent in you know the US or in other in other territories. And that's that's fantastic. But they are first-time founders who really understand you know their clients and their industry, but they haven't built a business before. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of challenges that come with building with building businesses, you know, in terms of people, in terms of governance, in terms of systems, and a whole host of different areas. And then also, you know, that's before we even get into just the the kind of strategic challenges that companies are going to face as you grow and expand into new territories and product lines. And I think that's where, you know, that's where we find founders often need the most support and guidance and advice through their journey. And and that's where we come into the the picture. Uh So presumably when management come in, they already come in with a skill set of some description. What areas do you feel typically they are strong in and what areas do you feel they typically need more support? Or is there no typical? No, there's no, no, there's there's definitely, there's definitely no typical. I mean, I think if you were to break it down, you, you often have kind of technical or strategic founders and then often you have kind of commercial founders as well mm-hmm. so we can go out there and either sort of build the product design the product or sell the product and that's pretty much the same across you know b2b and b2c as well mm-hmm. um, and certainly that's what we are looking for when when we when we back management teams where the where their challenges kind of come in is they've maybe not had a finance background or you know an hr or people background or Say if it's a if it's a consumer company, a, a production background, a merchandising background. So you always find that there are those that there are those gaps, uh-huh. and you can plug some of them, you know, by finding great people at that early stage. But you can't you can't plug them all. And is that simply a function of the company doesn't have the resources to plug in? Yeah, it's just you resource. You're just resource constrained. You're resource yeah. constrained. So and 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 also you can't necessarily get the right people in at the right time as well mm-hmm. um so uh, you know th- there is a balance as you scale your company um, between you know kind of that c-suite exec level middle management and then bringing through you know really sector specialists or juniors as well in there 
Mm -hmm. So you as a fund manager, obviously you take some sort of role. I know different fund managers do different ways in terms of boards or whatever. So what's your sort of model in terms of how you actually interact with companies? Taking one step back, a lot of people talk about being kind of a hands-on or a hands-off investor. Mm -hmm. and I, I don't necessarily like that terminology. I'd say that we like to be close to our portfolio companies. You know, We're not there to run the business. We're very, very clear about that. Um, but we do want to be there to provide all the support and advice that they need, whether that's from us or whether that's our ability to put them in touch with, with the right individual. So on a, on a typical investment for us, and, and by typical investment, I would say that we are one of the first institutional investors to be on the cap table mm -hmm. and we would lead the round and that's the majority of investments that that we've done to date in that instance we would we would take a board seat so we would we would sit in the board alongside the management team and, and you know some other non-execs in, in an ideal scenario but not always the case and and you you have ability to kind of help and support the management team through through that role but that's not necessarily in my view always the kind of most crucial role because mm -hmm. that's part of your investment agreement and really where you're truly demonstrating value is if they want to pick the phone up to you outside of that type of environment and they're mm -hmm. looking they actually trust you when things are going well they trust you when things are not going so well and they know that you're there and you're working with them to achieve a good result rather than, um, mm -hmm. you know, some of the dynamics can be different in other circumstances. So, so, so how often would you expect to be in contact with your investee companies? Is that going to be sort of a daily, weekly, monthly? Yeah, it does. It does. It does change. I'd say probably for the companies that I'm involved in, um, we will check in at least once a week, but it will mm -hmm. be, you know, sometimes that's exchanging a few WhatsApp, sometimes that's a quick call, other times it will obviously be more formal, formal mm -hmm. meetings. Mm -hmm. When things are going smoothly, you know, there's often less of a need um, to check in. When things are going really well, you, you might check in because and you might want to discuss all, all the strategic opportunities that are now available to to the organization so you do see you do see ebbs and flows but certainly we, we would i would speak to most people at least you know once a week or once every two weeks at the very stretch mm -hmm. and you mentioned about them picking up the phone to you is your expectation that they're going to call you as required or are you as a manager more proactive about it if you're saying oh i haven't heard from um jimmy or jenny for uh, a couple of weeks, so I better get get onto them. Yeah, no, it's it's an, it's interesting. Um, so we have we obviously have information rights, etc., that mm -hmm. come with our investments. So we will get you know periodic management accounts and all that kind of good stuff. But it's up to it's up to us as investors mm -hmm. to demonstrate our value to to the management team, whether that's the CEO, the founder, or you know the COO or the CFO or whoever it might be that you're engaging with and. They're not going to pick the phone up to you just to be nice and polite because they're exceedingly busy. So you need to you need to build that relationship with them through the through the investment process, post investment, and and you want them to, as I say, you want them to share the good news and the bad news and the not really any news. They just want a bit of a chat. So you know that's that's a key part of our role, um, and certainly I, I as I view it, that's a key part of the role and. Whenever I get those phone calls, I'm always reminded that I'm, I'm doing a good job. Okay, 
Good. So, so something that springs to mind there is you, you mentioned about this relationship you have being very important. Clearly not everybody gets on equally well. I mean, not necessarily yourself, but you, you're part of a team. Have you seen circumstances where, okay, the manage, investment manager and the, and the company management haven't quite hit it off and you've had to swap per, sort of responsibility around or whatever? Does that happen much? No, I've not seen I've not seen that situation. Oh. You're right. Not everyone is going to be, you know, best friends and completely aligned in terms of um, you know hobbies and interests and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'd certainly, you know, that that'd be great. But that's that's probably a utopia. I think I think where we're fortunate in that in the kind of the EIS and the VCT space is that you get to know management really well before you do an investment. So generally you are you are starting on the right terms and you're and um on the right footing so i think it would be very rare that you anyone in our space would close an investment and kick off on the wrong foot that's mm-hmm. not to say there isn't challenges in the negotiations there always is but everyone understands that you know you've got your different positions yeah i, I mean it's an interesting dynamic i've known one or two people have sort of said okay you've got to change from the it's not quite adversarial when you're investing but there is an adversarial element almost about negotiations and then you're totally aligned afterwards and that can be a change that's or a transition that's that needs managing totally but we actually had the, had the conversation uh, yesterday i think it was about that and uh, we were negotiating over a point and then even the the the, the ceo of the company we're looking to invest in said oh, i can't wait till we finished doing this because then we know we're just on the same page and going forward <laughs> together. So I think I think that's really common. But to go back to your original point, where where those relationships can break down and where there's a bit of friction or whether there's whether there's a disagreement, that's where actually your governance structures mm-hmm. come into play and ensuring that you have a board structure that that works and is collaborative and um, and and everyone is engaged there. And if 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 that breaks down, even if personal relationships break down, if that breaks down, that's where you've got real kind of challenges. I'm I'm very fortunate. I've not seen that yet, but I have heard of those scenarios. So we're always very keen to ensure that our boards function the way that a board should mm-hmm. should function essentially. Yeah, I have heard one or two managers say that they think governance is sort of the core function of venture capital and trying to yeah, put that I- into places. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about support. That is probably the area that we can give the biggest and the biggest support and advice. And and it's absolutely it's critical for when the companies that we invest in go for those later stage rounds or get acquired maybe by a PLC or even if they've got Mm -hmm. um, ambitions to list themselves, having having a true, a truly kind of ticking governance works uh, perfectly. So when it comes to improving governance, to what extent can you, as a fund manager, as an external party, drive that governance improvement? And to what extent are you relying on the company and the company management driving that? Yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's really interesting. I mean, part of our job is it's, it's hearts and minds. So you have to get them on board to the value proposition of why you're asking them to make these kind of changes mm-hmm. or implement these processes to their business. Ultimately, we will make sure it's embedded to the extent we can within our investment documentation. Um, so things like regular board meetings, information rights, whether you know we want 
to appoint non-execs or chairs or whatever that might be. We'll try and embed that in the investment mm -hmm. documentation. But that's limited in its value unless you can get the management teams on board. And that's why we do we do kind of management and people diligence as part of our deal assessment so that we understand the types of individual that we're that we're going to be working with and how mm -hmm. receptive they're going to be to to the changes that are going to happen to mm -hmm. their business over the next two or three years because taking on institutional funding isn't perfect for everyone yeah we place a lot of value on building that relation as you can probably tell on building that relationship but also understanding the people that we're we're going to be working with for five seven you know ten years potentially you mm -hmm. just don't know yeah i, I think a couple is it's a common thing that uh, a common comparison is that actually a venture capital investor relationship can last longer than a lot of marriages. <laughs> I, have, I have heard that, but we've got a couple of new marriages in, in the team, so I didn't want to say that and <laughs> jinx them. <laughs> so in terms of the sort of type of support you can bring, you mentioned that you are a generalist manager. Um, and I think the danger that some people think is you know, a jack of all trades, a master of none in terms of the expertise that you can bring to a company. How do you as a generalist manager help companies in specific circumstances or with specific issues? Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, I think, I think that is, that is very valid. Um, it's a kind of valid comment. And if you look at the advice that we would give companies at different stages of the revolution even in the last few weeks if I look mm -hmm. at my own portfolio it, it does touch on a lot of different areas and we are very very fortunate actually at, at Puma that the scale of our our operation because we've got three investment desks we've got the EIS BCT growth capital side we've got a property management team and we've got a public markets team as well mm -hmm. and so we're actually very fortunate that we have out those sort of sector disciplines that sit across our entire business mm -hmm. that our portfolio company can go to to get advice whether that is in marketing whether that is in um, in people or whether that's in you know other areas that kind of sit across them specifically within our growth capital engine we've identified that and we've brought in specific portfolio resource mm -hmm. who who work closely in, in, in different areas. So a big one is finance, which obviously straddles governance. And um, so we've brought in a, a kind of portfolio finance manager who works very, very closely with our portfolio in terms of helping them to get the right management accounts to think about the, the kind of key performance indicators that are crucial to their business, who then helps them monitor that and spot, you know, challenges before mm -hmm. they become challenges. And then is there as a sounding board for the finance team through recruitment challenges or, you know, as they're appointing auditors or whatever else they might mm. be, any challenges they're facing. We've also invested in our in our value creation team. And um, so that's someone who can go in, work with the companies largely on their commercial engine and their commercial model, which, again, mm -hmm. is another area that we find um, typically companies invest in, invest relatively heavily in our stage of investment mm -hmm. so you invest so, sorry are you investing pre or post product market fit yeah well product market fit a lot of people look at that differently we would say mm -hmm. we're investing as you start to get product market fit so definitely post commercialization and um, so we're looking for there to be a core business unit that we can invest into mm -hmm. and scale 
but also, you know, we're investing in expansion into other areas, other products, territories, disciplines, whatever that might be. Um, often when we come in, the commercial side of the business is, is founder-led. Um, they might have a small team underneath them, but it's, it's founder-led. They will not have optimised all of their channels. That's that, that's just not never going to be the case. And building out that commercial engine is challenging and, and you need to do it sequentially. And you, you essentially need to be able to start off with making sure you're crystal clear on what is your customer's problem uh-huh. and your current customers and you know the customers in the future areas you might want to go into. Uh-huh. And how does our solution solve that problem? Um, and then you start to build out your customer profiles, you build out your commercial engine around that to meet those needs. That's quite a big exercise. And how well developed the companies typically? Because I... You know, I look at books like Steve Blank or the Strategizer stuff or whatever, and it's like, and and the stuff's out there, and you you kind of think people should be reading this or are reading this, but maybe they're not. No, I, it is all look, it is all out there, but there's there's a difference between the the theory and then putting it into practice, and often mm-hmm. you need someone who can work alongside you and 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 help you do that, and that's that's why we've invested in this individual to help our portfolio companies do that because. It's not easy to build out a commercial engine or a product team or whatever that might be while also running a business and while also ensuring that your core proposition isn't hampered as a result. Because that's always the risk. You take your eye off the core mm-hmm. area as you build out those growth areas. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's a big challenge. And then um, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an area that I wouldn't say companies necessarily find, you know, challenging, but it is a challenge that a lot of companies will face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, presumably, if they're at the stage of commercialization, then somebody out there is buying the product, which suggests the product is worth buying. That's why you're investing. So that you at least have that behind you, even if the product may not be perfect yet. Um, yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and then it's a case of getting your your channels to market working and um, to actually start to get scale like you you've proven out the proposition you know cost you know it resonates with your target customer base but then how do you go and access them and is it through is it through partnership is it through a kind of hands-on outbound sales model or do you actually need to build a marketing engine that's generating those leads and then you you qualify those leads and then you hand them to your your kind of closers and then you've got if you're working particularly with enterprise customers, you've got account management and customer uh-huh. support that you need to build out those functions as well. Uh-huh. So um, it's making sure that that companies are doing that, as I say, in the kind of in the right order and scaling in line with their revenue as well. Yeah. It's important. You make it sound like there's a lot of discipline in there in terms of you have or or structure in terms of you you see all the need is to create a structured process or put a lot of structure in place. Presumably, initially, as you say, you've got a founder, a couple of founders, oftentimes they're just trying to get business where they can. Is that kind of the reality? Yeah, no, it's 100% the reality. And it it sounds like there would be friction between the process and the ability to innovate and move fast and, mm-hmm. and all that kind of things. And actually, the way that we present it is, having the processes in place allows you to continue to do that because you don't then get dragged into having to solve these operational challenges and you can go out there and and execute on your strategic vision and and yeah there's a there's again parts and minds 
there's a process in getting people comfortable. Some people comfortable with that, not everyone. Um, a lot of people do get mm-hmm. it. But ultimately, it's, it's very, very important because that's where we, we have seen companies face those challenges as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there's operational scaling issues that are going to come if you're a business that's 1 million revenue with 20 customers and then mm-hmm. you're 10 million revenue with 200 customers. That is a very, very different proposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you've not got the processes in place, then you're never going to get to 20, 30 and beyond. So. Yeah. Yeah, and and presumably some of that is is where that you got the underlying companies moving from a flat. Okay, I've got ten people, and it actually doesn't matter other than job titles. To if I'm moving to fifty people, you have to have a company structure, and there's a sales team, and there's a product development team, whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's moving away from that that structure, putting those structures, hiring the right people to build their teams out underneath them, and um, it's different. It's different skill sets, managing and building teams, than necessarily just being a you know a kind yeah. of an executor. Yeah. So uh, that's that is an area that we do work closely with our with our management teams on. It's an area where the 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 kind of head of the chief people officer at Puma, um, Tarini, she's she's fantastic at working with management teams just to think about what that structure looks like. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, not to go overboard on process, but ensuring mm-hmm. that they do have or at least ensuring that they've started to think about what those progression paths look like for when they bring people in and how mm-hmm. that might evolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it seems to me that, I mean, maybe maybe it's just a reflection of my own personal weaknesses probably, but it seems to me recruiting good people is probably going to be a, one of the big challenges for, for, for most companies in terms of, particularly if they haven't done it before, trying to find people, trying to put a process in place to recruit people consistently is is tricky. Nail in the head. It's 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 the hardest it's the hardest part. And that's that's why I say that founders and management teams in, in very different sectors and industries and different business models are facing the same challenges and, and it uh-huh. often just boils down to people and recruitment and getting that right because you know it can getting it wrong can set you back you know, six, twelve months, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. So, um, that's that's the biggest that's the biggest challenge. And um, I, I I won't confess or, or pretend that I have um, I've got it nailed down. But we've certainly got an idea of how we can help our portfolio in that sense. And you mentioned the issue about delays and problems with recruiting the wrong people. How often do you see the challenge where you're struggling to recruit the right person? It's taking a while longer than you think. Maybe, but you need that function filled. Do you think, okay, maybe we'll compromise a bit on getting the person getting in, or maybe do you think actually, let's get a consultant, stop the gap for six months or a year, and and that'll give us the time to find the right person. Yeah, I think it, I think it very very much much depends on on the role and how how kind of mission critical that is to the core business versus mm-hmm. the kind of expansion opportunities. I mean. One area, for example, that I don't think we would want to compromise on is is in like the finance team because mm-hmm. that that can create a lot of challenges. Um, so we would probably bring a consultant or a you know a fractional FD in potentially to mm-hmm. plug a gap while we went out to recruit for the right the right individual. We would never want to compromise, but we might if we if we're struggling to find the right individual, we might have to just recut our expectations of what that team 
structure is going to look like. I think mm-hmm. so. If we're looking maybe in the commercial engine, and um, you can then focus. You can maybe hire different people with different focuses, which which could work. But certainly, we we've got we, and that's a benefit of the investor, I suppose, is that we work with a lot of different partners who can provide that interim or fractional mm-hmm. um, or consultative resource. And we can see how they operate across our portfolio, so we can we can recommend them to mm-hmm. uh, companies with a, a relatively high degree of confidence that they'll execute on what what the challenges we're facing are. Yeah, and and, and if you're familiar with these people, hopefully that means that if, if there's sort of three people flying finance functions, you might be able to say, okay, this company is better for your stage or whatever. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I mean, on the on the finance side, we we know like a number of people who. Who we can, you know, call up and and bring into a portfolio company if there is a if, if there is a need, and um, you know, often that's an area where maybe the CEO is also kind of covering, or the COO is maybe covering finance mm-hmm. as well. So it's an area that typically we see scaled up quite quickly post investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you. you we spoke about you coming to company and develop a company. How does the need for support and the sort of support that you deliver or or companies require vary over time? Presumably, you're hoping that you know that they're going to have different needs at the very least. Yeah, so I think in the in the very very early stages post investment, um, often the support they're looking for is on that is on that kind of hiring hiring side or maybe bringing on you know non execs or a chair supplementing mm-hmm. the board. Maybe refining the the strategy is quite a key one as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always a lot of the companies we invest in have an almost overwhelming number of opportunities available to them. So looking for that sort of advice um, on on how to you know how to assess mm-hmm. them and and what was what opportunities will bring the most long term value for the business. And um, that's a that's a real good kind of. Um, opportunity once you bring in capital that you've got the freedom to not just focus on what's going to bring in revenue quickest and what's going to build value kind of on the longest term basis mm-hmm. so we tend to find that's the that's the kind of initial support that people are looking for and that that phase can last you know, a long space of strength through that life cycle of an investment we will see those ebbs and flows and then typically um, towards the say the back end of our investment cycle, whether that's a later fundraise or an exit, mm-hmm. again, we'll find that the portfolio teams typically um, lean on us quite heavily, if, particularly if it's the first time that they have been through that type of process because they're not necessarily sure what to expect and how to how to kind of manage their operations, et cetera, while they go through. So we tend to work quite closely um, on those processes as mm-hmm. well with our with our management teams. Are you someone who expects to pass so are you someone who expects to pass the baton on to a later stage investor at some point? Or are you someone who you think, right, we're going to be on the board until this company exits? Yeah, no, there's there's definitely there's definitely a life cycle. We we understand when a new investor comes in, and um, particularly if they're a kind of a later stage investor to us, mm-hmm. it's, you know, say a, say a Series B or even into Series C, then they're going to want a board seat, and we'll have to kind of consider our you know consider our our position. 
mean, our skill set is very, very focused on the stage that we invest in. Mm-hmm. So we are there to scale these businesses up through Series A and through Series B as well. After that, there are people who are more suited to working with the with the companies. And I think you know, we accept that, and we are mm-hmm. part of our job is to ensure that we find the right people to come in and almost be the the new custodians for the mm-hmm. company to a certain regard. And that's you know that's a key thing for us. We want to build those relationships with those funds, and we want to make sure that um, we're giving the management teams the kind of right advice when when those type of funds come in or 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 trade players as it might be, depending on what that exit route looks like. Where where we are, keen and again, it's the sort of flexibility of some of the money that we that we manage, is that we do like want to be able to stay in for the journey as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not we don't want to just kind of exit as soon as possible. So we want to stay in, we want to support. And if we've got companies, we do have companies who have got really big opportunities, but to unlock those opportunities, they're going to need new pools of capital. Mm-hmm. You'll be aware of the restrictions with the IS and VCT capital. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't continue to participate to the extent possible through that mm-hmm. journey, even if we bring new partners in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you, earlier you mentioned about you coming and saying, being clear to management that you're not running the company uh, instead of them. How easy is it to find that balance? Because you've spoken a lot about involvement of what you do, and, and it seems to me it would be very easy, especially when when a company's going through one of those difficult patches, for you to just say, right, roll in with sleeves, you know, go get involved, whatever it takes to get it through. At the same time, you know. Yeah, the key, the key thing that I think we as investors all need to keep in mind is don't get too stuck into the detail. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the kind of minutiae of running a company. I mean, I we, we have a number of consumer brands in the portfolio and I always have to catch myself from trying to give them advice on developing their product as if I am the apparel expert. <laughs> and you've got to remember, you're not, they are. That's why you back them. And that's mm-hmm. applicable across, you know, every, every single type of business that we, we work in. So it it's about putting those frameworks in place. It's about challenging their thinking and you, you do need to you do need to kind of keep that keep that in mind you just need to be aware of the the role we play as much as we would like to get involved and and, and one thing that is critical is that unless you are the type of investor that is that is able to go and commit and spend that time in a company you need to also be aware of the requests that you're putting on the company because if you as a board member asks for something, asks to see something, asks them to explore an opportunity, the company is going to do that. So you need to make sure that any request you're kind of putting on them, you've thought them through, you've started mm-hmm. to kind of do a bit of research and you feel they're, they're real opportunities that are worth exploring rather than an offhand thought that you had in the taxi over to the mm-hmm. board meeting. So, Does that kind of constrain you a little bit? Because if you want to be considered, that also means that it's going to be harder for you just to, okay, I'm sitting in the, you know, as you say, in the taxi with, with the CEO on the way to a meeting, we're just shooting the breeze and floating ideas around. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I, don't, I don't think, I don't think it can, I don't think it constrains you, as I say, as long as you, you kind of understand your areas of expertise and management's areas of expertise. And, you know, we do, we do look at, we probably spend a lot of time looking at the data, looking at the key performance indicators. So, you know, the majority of what we will be saying to the management teams is informed by data and informed by experience. Um, but it's ensuring that's 
the kind of advice that we're giving them rather than, oh, I, I really think, you know, red is in this season or blue is in this season or whatever else it might be. Um, and, you know, again, the test of that is if they keep coming to you and asking for your advice and your opinion, then, you know, you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And... I mentioned that times get hard for every company. There are times when it goes beyond just hard for companies and they have real genuine problems, possibly even company-threatening problems that require you as an external investor to possibly help the company or or maybe even, even without the help of the company, make some difficult decisions. How easy – well, it's obviously not going to be easy, but how do you handle those? You know, where does downsizing say or where the company's got to shrink or or reposition back heavily or something? Yeah, is that is that is a very, very challenging thing. I mean, it's undoubtedly the kind of the hardest part of, of our job and, mm-hmm. and certainly I would imagine the hardest part of the management team's job as well. We all have a, a duty, we've got fiduciary duties to make sure that the companies um are are kind of going concerns, right? Mm-hmm. So we we need to we need sometimes we do need to take those those difficult decisions i think it, again it comes back to it, it comes back and back to trying to use data to as much as possible to preempt challenges before they become really really tough challenges and uh-huh. um, within a business so it's much much easier to scale back investment than it is to make you know the tip, like to make cuts to a business uh-huh. essentially, and um, so we'll always try and look at look at it from that side as early as possible. But you know sometimes there will be businesses that that face those challenges. It it does take an emotional toll um, on uh-huh. them on them on them the the management team. We need to kind of understand that we need to give them the support that that they need, give them the breathing space they need as well, and you can't necessarily downsize and then get growth within you know two breaths so and you just have to have to work with them on that on that Mm -hmm. kind of side so it is there's no easy way to do it but ultimately as long as you're comfortable that it's the right decision for the kind of longevity of the company and for the employees that will remain with the company you 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 know it's the right thing to do Mm -hmm. and as a manager is there any pressure for you to sort of focus on the better companies at all because it always seems to me one of the challenges for a fund manager is that you can spend a lot of time trying to support companies that are basically, you know, you, you, you sign to save them a little bit and you, then you get 80% of your money back or one time of your money back. But they, they can take such a huge amount of time um, or you can spend a huge amount of time that's going to fail. And, and how do you as a manager balance your time about who you give your attention to? That's a, that's a great question. That's definitely a great question. Uh, I think I think that is firstly probably easier said than done, but it is also mm-hmm. counter to to our our kind of messaging and, and who we want to be in the market. I'm sure some of our peers would say the same and that you know we are going into this as a partnership. We're very clear about that at the outset with management teams. It would not be the right thing to say, well, you're not performing, so that partnership is is breaking down. Um, so it doesn't work like that. We you know, we are there to to support the teams as part of our part of our job, um, and and also, you know, I've I've been doing this for five years. I've seen companies go through challenges, but those challenges can be you know six months, twelve months even, mm-hmm. and then they come through it 
and it's a stronger business and you now look at them and they're getting really good growth. They've got solid kind of financials, kind of solid processes in place. Um, and that took a lot of hard work on you know, some hard work on our side, but a lot of hard work on the management team side as well. So um, I think it would be the wrong thing to do to, to, to not devote the time that any of our management teams needed from us. Um, and, you know, if you work a bit longer, you work a bit longer. Yeah. And presumably, having gone through a couple of those yourselves, that will give you the confidence next time something occurs around, you're doing the right thing and you're not actually working against your interests to, to, to sort of support failing companies or for companies that might be failing. Totally. And, and look, it's obviously been a, a you know a really challenging kind of couple of years with, with COVID and that's affected the lockdowns, affected companies in very, very different ways, whether they would kind of furloughed people or whether they saw a slowdown in their sales cycle. And a lot of them had to adapt and a lot of them came through it and are, are, are you know, in a really strong position. And for, for me, that gives me a lot to draw on when down the line, I might have other companies that I'm working with that face challenges. And I can say, well, you've seen how you, you know these people because we're, we're very keen that our portfolio and that we put on kind of sessions for our portfolio to get together and, and problem solve and exchange ideas. So, so you've seen how um, this company has come through these challenges. You can come through these challenges as well. Yeah. You mentioned the pandemic there. Obviously, there were specific challenges as we went through the pandemic, and hopefully we're, we are through the pandemic. We'll, time will tell on that. Has it had any effect on either what you need to do to support companies or how you su- support companies? From my perspective, that's probably a difficult question to answer, given when I came into the industry. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I came in before the pandemic, but ultimately it's been such a large part of my experience. So I'm not sure if there's been that huge, uh, huge an impact. I think it's I think what it has done is it's, it's emphasised how much this is a relationship driven role and the need to 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 talk to the management teams as as, mm-hmm. you know, people and confidants as well and understand that. You know, everyone was facing a lot of emotional and personal challenges mm-hmm. through that kind of cycle. And and still, a lot of people are feeling the kind of after effects from that side as well. When we were chatting before we started recording, you mentioned ESG. Mm. And clearly, it's something that five years ago when you started, you know, nobody was talking about ESG, I suspect. To what extent is that part of what you're doing in support? Um, and and how, how are management seeing it? Yeah, so it's it, yeah. You, I mean, you're probably you're probably right. There's been a it's it's right at the forefront of the agenda right now, and there's been huge sort of um, strides in our industry and um, to to bring it to the forefront in 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 recent years. You know, from our perspective, we're in we're in a good position and um, to go out there and kind of understand what best practice looks mm-hmm. like and what our portfolio companies need to do. We go into you know with our eyes wide open. It's often, it's not that necessarily they'll have bad practices, but they just won't be aware of what they need to be tracking and how to actually go about driving improvement in specific areas of their business. And presumably um, it would be unreasonable to go into an early stage company and say, right, you're going to be ASG perfect anyway. No, absolutely not. So so the key thing for us is, firstly, do you have a, an awareness? Mm-hmm. Yes or no. And do you have a willingness to try and, and improve? So it's not necessarily like, you know, addressing challenges is do you want to improve broadly and and all the companies we invest in all the management teams do so we send 
we send a kind of a high level questionnaire and uh-huh. um, sort of think of it maybe as a bit of a kind of hygiene check for our companies when we invest in them. Um, and that can identify areas where co- collaboratively as a board, um, uh-huh. so it will be us, the company and anyone else who sits on the board can look at where we can drive improvement and how we can do that. And, you know, we certainly don't expect every company to be fully ESG compliant, even in our life cycle, because you know PLCs aren't as compliant as they could mm-hmm. be. But as long as they're working, as long as the conversation is held at the board level, and as long as they're working to drive improvements in their businesses and any, you know, if there was any bad business practices, which there really is, are, are stopped, I think they're in a very good position. Um, we have a we have an ESG committee within Puma and um, within within the within the wider Puma business and a specific one for the growth capital team for Puma Private Equity. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know we are very very focused. We once a one we assess our own practices, our own policies, and the kind of practices, policies, and advice that we give our portfolio companies as well. So we're you know we're very keen to stay on top of that. And the, and the great the great thing is as well. It's just evolving all the time. So you see the BBCA are putting out new guidance. They're giving new advice, new tools to monitor. And uh-huh. um, so it's there's more and more out there to make it simpler for companies to monitor and drive improvements in this uh-huh. space. Yeah, I, I, it's clearly an area that it's evolving very quickly. And I'm, I'm very interested in it. And I mean, it's good to see the progress. Uh, I'm also interested about seeing how it's actually going to evolve in the near future, because I think we do need some sort of co- more commonality so people are, have a more sort of comparable I, I totally basis. Agree. I totally agree. I think the more we can get an industry standard, which to, to their credit, there are a few organisations working on pulling something together, the more we've an industry standard and the more transparency in this space, the better, I think. So, you know, it, it, it should almost be just like your management accounts. It's something that everyone's tracking, everyone's aware of and everyone mm-hmm. wants to be wants to be better. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually it's, it, it's great that it's at the top of the agenda for, for most people in our space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 it's definitely a positive thing. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our favourite questions. So okay. <laughs> I, th- I think at least one of these you you start off you almost started off the podcast by answering, but we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, we'll throw these at you and get your thoughts. So, what was the most recent publicly announced investment you made, and why do you make it? Uh, so we just uh, announced an investment in a company called HR Joe, which mm-hmm. is a software platform focused on on as I say the HR space very, very focused on probably what I'd say is the underserved part of the market, so the S and SME. Um, and it's mm-hmm. a really, really nice solution just to allow maybe some of those more resource-constrained companies to manage their people and manage um, their people as they scale um, and all those kind of policies and processes and stuff that sit alongside that. So, yeah, we're really excited about that. And it's a it's a space where there's just been a lot of innovation and investment going through in the last few years. Mm-hmm. I have seen some people start talking about HR tech as as a distinct area. So it's obviously an area that's getting a lot of focus. Um, yeah, definitely. So in the classic VC triumvirate of market product and management, we know they're all important. Which one do you think is the most important? And I think you might have said already. <laughs> uh, management, I'm sure that comes through. For us, it's, for us it's management um, without a shadow of a doubt because that's just so core to 
it's so core to our investment thesis. But I think that's also reflective of the stage that we invest in. Mm-hmm. Um, because by that point, you have started to kind of prove out the product and you, you and, and also, as you say, that product market fit. So you've got a better feel for what the addressable market is. So for us, it's, it's definitely management. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think, I think you've expounded on that plenty of times already. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. It's uh, a good question. Um, I think it's probably kind of a couple couple instances where we have not managed to close a, close an investment or not even close an investment where we've put terms forward and not not been accepted. And so maybe kind of earlier on in my career. And I think the 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 challenge there and what I learned from it was that I was focusing probably too much on on what we needed and what we were looking for and not really truly listening to the founder and understanding what it was that they needed from us, from an investor and, um, you know, ongoing. So it was just too much of a kind of one-way street. And um, that's that's kind of evolved. And I think it's, you know, uh, it's it's moving from kind of an M&A world at Deloitte to kind of an investment world. Mm-hmm. That, that Puma, it's a very different sort mm-hmm. of mindset. And is that something you learned as well through the support process because presumably very easy as in coming in in your early days to sort of say right I'm, i i i know you know my my job to come in and do all this stuff here vomps. yeah absolutely so that's that's for you that's where you know when you have these these disappointments um mm-hmm. i'll call them disappointments rather than failures but when you have <laughs> these disappointments that's when you you yourself need a strong net support network mm-hmm. internally and you need your kind of mentors that you can you can speak to and, and they can they can help you see where where you could have acted differently and maybe got 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 the result that you wanted and then you know you try and incorporate that into the way that you work and and, and further down the line yeah i think i think the degree of self-reflection as an investment manager is is essential i, I see i see some people you know perhaps more in the quoted space than this space who have it seems to me a lot of arrogance, and I just wonder mm. how you're going to actually um, sort of keep learning and keep correcting your mistakes. Yeah, you've got to you've got to remember you're not you know masters of the universe. <laughs> yes, so. We had a when I was a fund manager, we had a receptionist who used to keep telling us that. Remember, you're not masters of the universe. You're not. <laughs> Absolutely, we should get it. We should get it printed on the wall. <laughs> um. So the EIS and VCT industry that we work in is great in many ways, but it's not perfect. If you could change something about it, what would you change? So I think the the restrictions on uses of capital can be can be slightly counterintuitive at times, um, and mm-hmm. such the as ability, the way that companies can kind of deploy that, particularly if we're thinking about maybe doing kind of bolt on acquisitions mm-hmm. or kind of acquiring certain assets, and um, you know. I think we there would need to be very clear parameters in place because the, the the most crucial thing for our industry is maintaining the integrity of the schemes. That's got to be the most crucial thing. But ultimately, that can put some constraints on not just us as the investors, but also the kind of portfolio companies themselves. Because if you create a early stage industry around DIS VCT funds, which we have in the UK, and then you've got areas of investment that are excluded from them, there does become a little bit of a kind of equity gap there 
it's difficult for for companies to fill. So I think I would be keen to sort of see if there was any opportunities to to, to add some flex in there and, and I say it, making sure you've got the right parameters in place so that the, the schemes maintain their integrity but just to give management teams that that little bit more flexibility mm-hmm. so by that do you mean relaxing the risk of capital criteria or is this more about the ability say you know if you give money to an EIS you can't use it to buy things and you think maybe allowing five or ten percent to be for a little bit exactly. of acquisition would be appropriate it, yeah, exactly. So if there was, yeah, yeah, it would need to it would need to be you know a, a a kind of relatively small amount of the investment. We don't want to get in a situation where EIS and BCT is funding secondary markets, mm-hmm. and that's not what it's there for. It's there to fund growth, but a flexibility in how you how you get that growth, I think, would be would would be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, presumably there is the capability sort of merges share share for share deals or something but that that's not going to work in every circumstance yeah exactly exactly yeah that that, that, that would be interesting you got me thinking now (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean look i'd say the schemes are the schemes are great so it's not it's not necessarily easy to to think Mm -hmm. of improvements that's one area Mm -hmm. the age requirement is also an area that people talk about quite a lot and say well is is seven years or ten years really applicable you know, in the current environment where it maybe takes companies a little bit longer to get traction, again, one to one to kind of think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I think this, the seven-year one feels arbitrary to me in a way yeah. that very few of the other rules do. Yeah, um, sort of. So as listeners of podcast know, I'm an avid reader, always looking out for suggestions. Is there anything out there you like and would recommend? Yeah, so I... I I should probably read more about human behaviour, given the focus of this podcast and, and building relationships and management. So, if you've got any books to recommend, there, please send them over. From my, look, I always I find myself going back to. I'm not sure if you've read it, the Lean Startup, mm-hmm. um, all the time. I find myself doing that, and I'm always recommending it when we bring new people into the team. Like, oh, you should you should read this because I think it just provides mm-hmm. just a really nice framework for how we think about you know testing ideas in the market. And uh, one thing I really like about it, actually, is that it sort of also teaches you that failure is okay and things don't always work out as planned and, you know, moving on. And um, so that's that's probably one that, uh, that I, as I say, it's not something I've recently read for the first time, but it's something I pick up quite a bit to mm-hmm. just re-familiarise myself. Yeah, it's funny that it hasn't been mentioned on the podcast for a long time. And I think you're now the second person in a row. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. No, it's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a great book. So, um, yeah. I've also just started reading uh, Jeeves and Worcester for a bit of light relief. So, I'd recommend that if you've not. I've never actually read those. I, I, rem- I remember the TV series briefly, which I never really watched that much with Stephen Fry yeah, and Hugh Laurie. But someone, someone gave me one for Christmas, so I, I, I sort of ploughed through that in a bit of downtime, which was funny. Yeah, you worry sometimes these old books aren't going to age very well because there seems to be that that's one of these books that may or may not, but from a distance. But yeah. it sounds like <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, can, have. I can, I, yeah, I can see that probably to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. What do you wish you knew when you start with Puma that you know now? Uh, probably, probably coming back to that that earlier point that it's this isn't a transactional role, mm-hmm. um, and you you can't just be thinking you know purely about let's let's do the deal and let's get that over the line and it is a kind of longer term um, sort of relationship play. So I think 
I think that was probably the biggest culture shift for me when I when I moved role um, into Puma, and and certainly that's that's something that I speak to our new joiners about as well, just to to kind of think about that, you know. Yeah. Okay. So, if people want to find out more about what you're doing at Puma, where should they go? Uh, yes, yeah, so we've got we've got a website pumaprivateequity.co.uk. Um, okay. So you can you can go on there. You can find out all all our news and and a bit more about our portfolio. We also have a um, you know we've got a relatively active LinkedIn where we post a lot of portfolio news and you know some 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 insight from the from the team um, about you know various various issues and aspects of of the kind of VC growth equity space. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I should subscribe to that. I do follow one or two people on LinkedIn. I realise I don't follow Puma, I should. I'll have to correct that. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, perfect. So thank you very much for coming on today, Ben. Really enjoyed chatting with you and, and trying to see how, how we can help companies more. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks very much, Brian. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Ben's experiences supporting companies. It really is a key part of the venture capital process, even if it is sometimes seen as a little less exciting than deal-making. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you liked what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on your podcast app. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time.